What's up everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Da Vinci Cases. Alright, so the way this works is we've got a clinical case followed by a board style question. So we're going to go through the question stem, point out the relevant clinical findings, take a look at the question and the answer choices, and then kind of divert for a minute and go through the relevant concepts to answering the question. Then we'll come back and apply those concepts that we went over to answering the question. Alright, so we have a 72-year-old woman presenting to the emergency department with substernal chest pain. So with this, you definitely want to be thinking about a myocardial infarction. Elderly woman, certainly at risk. Um, if you look at her other symptoms, they also include dyspnea and diaphoresis. These are also very common associated symptoms with a myocardial infarction. She has an EKG done, and that indicates ST segment elevation and leads 2, 3, and AVF. The big thing you want to take away from this is she has what's called a STEMI, which is ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, which refers to transmural necrosis. And what we mean by transmural is really the entire wall. So if you remember histologically, so let's say this is the left ventricle. Let's say this is where the blood is within the ventricle. You have the endocardium. You have the myocardium, which is essentially the muscle of the, of the heart. And then you have the epicardium, which is that outer, outer portion of the tissue. And so what a STEMI refers to is transmural necrosis, which involves necrosis of all three layers, the entire wall, versus if you had ST segment depression, this refers to subendocardial necrosis. Still serious, but not as serious as a STEMI because it's only you only would have ischemia of this region here, just under the endocardium, which is that epithelial layer lining the, the ventricular cavity. So with a STEMI, what you want to take away from this is that the next step in management is they got to go right to the cath lab. They need angioplasty. So that's what they did here. They took her to the cardiac catheterization lab. She underwent angioplasty and stenting for a single vessel infarction. So she only needed one stent. The other thing the cath revealed is that she was also found to have right dominant coronary circulation. Now, what's important to remember for that is, is that really dictates where the, the posterior descending artery stems from. And we'll go over the coronary circulation in more detail in a few slides here. But generally, if they are right dominant, their right coronary artery is going to give off that posterior descending artery. And so then for if they were to be left dominant, that means the left circumflex artery, LCX, gives off the PDA. The other thing is they can be co-dominant, where it would come off both the RCA and the left circumflex. So right dominant, right coronary artery gives rise to the posterior descending artery. If they're left dominant, left circumflex gives rise to the posterior descending artery. And then co-dominant is where you have the artery, the PDA originating from both the RCA and the left circumflex. So the procedure is successful, and the patient's sent to the coronary care unit to recover. Three days later, on rounds, the cardiologist auscultates a holosystolic murmur best heard at the apex. Now, what's interesting about this is that the woman had no prior history of heart murmurs or valvular disease. So essentially, you want to think about what's happening here. So the patient came in with an MI. They had percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, which is essentially angioplasty and stenting. And then they had a new 
murmur developed from that. So what happens is, is, the, is, and then you look at what the question here is asking is, which artery was the most likely site of this patient's myocardial infarction? So you, what this question is asking you, an infarction in which of these arteries is most likely to cause a new murmur specifically heard during systole at the apex? So to answer that, let's talk about the key history and exam findings. Now we've gone through these, but we just want to summarize them in a nice organized list. So she had ST elevation on the EKG. That's a STEMI with transmural necrosis. Single vessel MI, treated successfully with angioplasty and stenting. The cath also revealed right dominant coronary circulation. Again, that just corresponds to her right coronary artery. It's the source of her posterior descending artery. Most people are right dominant, by the way, just to keep that in mind. And then subsequently, she developed a holostolic murmur, best heard at the apex, although she had no prior history of valve disease or heart murmurs. So to answer this question, we need, to, we need to really get to the bottom of what exactly this murmur is. So let's briefly review the sites of auscultation for the different valves. So again, here's the first rib, here's the second rib, here's that sternal angle where you have the manubrium joining with the sternal body here. So here would be your second intercostal space. So this is where you're going to auscultate the aortic valve. That makes sense because you're just downstream from the aortic valve, which is going to be about right here. And so you're listening for changes in flow because normal flow is going to sound is going to be quiet versus if you have stenosis or regurgitation of the aortic valve you're going to hear that as a murmur at this site so this would be on the right side so if we go over here to the left side at the second intercostal space this is going to be the pulmonic valve and so again you're going to be just downstream from the pulmonic valve where you can oscillate any abnormalities there so if we come down here this is the third space the fourth space and then we have the fifth intercostal space here so if we go up right against the sternum here, the sternal border, in the fifth left fifth intercostal space, we're listening for the tricuspid valve, because the tricuspid valve is going to be about right here, and so you're going to be downstream from there. And then here at the apex is where you're going to listen for the mitral valve. You also may hear of this referred to as on the left side in the mid-clavicular line, and that's an imaginary line drawn from the midpoint of the clavicle all the way down the chest. And so at that point in the fifth intercostal space, or at the apex of the heart, as we describe in the case here, is where you can oscillate the mitral valve. So as far as murmurs go, you want to be thinking about diastole versus systole. So let's go to the whiteboard here for a second to figure out what a systolic murmur at the apex corresponds to. So if we draw our left ventricle like this, so here's our LV. We have our aorta coming out like this. So this is our aorta, aortic valve here. And then here we have the mitral valve. So we have the two leaflets here. So this is our mitral valve. And then here we have the left atrium. So during diastole, you want to think about during diastole and during systole, during each of these, one valve has to be open and one valve has to be closed with regards to the mitral valve and the aortic valve. So during diastole, what drives blood flow from the left atrium to the left ventricle is that the pressure in the left atrium is greater than the pressure in the left ventricle. And so that pushes blood into the left ventricle. So during that, the mitral valve has to be open and the aortic valve is going to be closed because you're filling the left ventricle up. You're not ready to pump the blood out. Now, during systole, the mitral valve should be closed because during, during systole, 
you're going to have contraction all throughout the heart muscle here of the left ventricle. And so what that's going to do is decrease the volume of the left ventricle, which in turn will dramatically increase the pressure of the left ventricle to then push blood out through the aortic valve and into the aorta and into the systemic circulation. And so during that, obviously you want the aortic valve open. So if you're hearing a murmur here at the apex downstream from the mitral valve during systole, what that means is that the mitral valve is open when it shouldn't be, you know, the mitral valve is supposed to be closed. If it's open, you're going to hear regurgitant flow back into the left atrium. Now, as far as an MI affecting the mitral valve, let's draw the left ventricle here again. And again, remember you had the aortic valve like this, and then you have your mitral valve leaflets like this, and then you had your left atrium here. Now for your mitral valve, what you have is these papillary muscles down here that send these cord like structures called the cord tendony that attach like kind of like strings on a parachute to these valve leaflets here. And what happens is, is these papillary muscles, they're going to contract like this. And when muscles contract, they get shorter and they're going to pull. So you're pulling down like this. Now, again, you have to remember this is not occurring during diastole. This is the papillary muscles do not assist with blood flow from the left atrium to the left ventricle. With, when they contract is actually during systole. So during systole, again, you're having contraction of the entire left ventricle here. And again, you're decreasing the volume of the left ventricle so that you can dramatically increase the pressure to then pump blood out through the aortic valve and into the aorta. And so what happens is, is that the pressure is so high in the left ventricle is that it's actually pushing up against these valves. And so the valves alone can't withstand that pressure. They would otherwise, they would just pop open and you'd have flow, you'd have flow of blood back into the left atrium. So you have these cord tendony attached to these papillary muscles to provide extra support. So these contract and they keep the valves shut. They, they keep them from blowing back open and letting blood leak back into the left atrium. Now, the problem is, is if you have ischemia here to the ventricular wall, and thus these papillary muscles that are coming off of the ventricular wall, you're, you could have ischemia to one or both of these papillary muscles. And so if you lose even one of these papillary muscles, you're going to lose this contraction and this support for one of these leaflets. And so these leaflets are going to fail and you're going to develop subsequent mitral valve regurgitation. So what you really want to be thinking about as far as this questions go, is they're asking which coronary artery is most likely affected. You want to be thinking about which coronary arteries supply these papillary muscles. So let's talk about that. So again, here's just a diagram showing the coronary circulation. So here, remember, you have the left coronary artery and the right coronary artery coming off the aortic root. So the left coronary artery comes here and it immediately bifurcates under the left atrial appendage into the left circumflex artery, or LCX, and the left anterior descending artery, the LAD. Now the LAD travels down sort of the center of the heart here and it supplies the anterior two-thirds of the interventricular septum and in a way divides the right ventricle from the left ventricle. You could think of it like that. The left circumflex wraps around the left ventricle and actually, as you can see here in this lighter region here, travels around the posterior aspect. Now the right coronary artery, as we show here, comes down, travels along the surface of the right ventricle, perfusing it, gives off this right marginal artery, which you can see here, and travels down and helps perfuse the right ventricle. And then the RCA wraps around like this, and then in the case of someone who's right coronary dominant, 
gives rise to the posterior descending artery or the PDA. And so then the PDA sort of travels in parallel as with the LAD, but on the posterior aspect and supplies that posterior one third of the interventricular septum. So now that we have the coronary circulation mapped out, let's talk about these papillary muscles here. So first you have the anterolateral papillary muscle. And again, these are both for the mitral valve. This muscle has a dual blood supply from the left circumflex artery and the LAD, which if you recall, both came from the left coronary artery. Now over here, you have the posterior medial papillary muscle. And this only has one artery supplying it, which would be the posterior descending artery, which in this case came from the right coronary artery because our patient is right coronary dominant. Now, what's important about this anterolateral papillary muscle having a dual blood supply is let's say you lose the left circumflex. Let's say you have an infarction there. The left coronary artery is still going to be sending blood to the LAD, which can then still perfuse this anterolateral papillary muscle. So it's still okay. So it's not likely that the infarction was in the left circumflex because that's not likely to lead to, or not most likely to lead to mitral valve regurgitation because you still have collateral circulation from the LAD. Now this could be vice versa. If you were to lose the LAD and you still have the left circumflex, then again, the papillary muscle will be okay. Versus if you have an infarction of either the right coronary artery or the posterior descending artery, you've lost the only blood supply to the posterior medial papillary muscle, the muscle's gonna fail, and you're gonna have mitral valve regurgitation. So as far as which artery is the most likely affected to result in a mitral valve regurgitation, it's got to be the PDA or the right coronary artery, because if you lose one of those, then this, then this muscle has lost all of its blood supply and is going to fail. So if we come back to the question here, again, what we want to think about is this is an MI, had PCI, stenting, and then resulted in new onset mitral valve regurgitation. So we want to think about which artery is most likely to cause a new onset mitral valve regurgitation, and we sort of have answered that already. Let's just go through the answer choices again, just for completeness sake. So again, the LAD, the left anterior descending, this supplies that anterolateral papillary muscle along with the left circumflex. And so again, if you were to lose this artery, you still have blood supply to this muscle provided by the left circumflex. So it's not, again, you wanna go with what's the most likely. Again, left circumflex, same thing here. If you were to lose that, you still have blood supply to this papillary muscle from the LAD. Now, the right coronary, especially since she's right dominant, again, the RCA is going to supply the posterior descending, which is what is the sole blood supply to this posterior medial papillary muscle. And so this is what's gonna be most likely affected because if you lose the PDA or the right coronary, you've lost the sole blood supply to this muscle. And by compromising this muscle, then that leads to mitral valve regurgitation. The right marginal, again, this comes off the right coronary and it aids the RCA in perfusing the right ventricle. It doesn't really have anything to do with supplying the papillary muscles involved with the mitral valve. So again, our answer is the right coronary artery because in someone who is right dominant, it's going to provide the PDA, which is going to be the sole supply to that posterior medial papillary muscle. 
And if you compromise that papillary muscle, you will develop mitral valve regurgitation. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Make sure you check back every Wednesday for new Da Vinci cases. And then to see the corresponding video for this audio, check out our website at dviacademy.com, where you can also find PDF notes for this audio as well. Also on our site, you can find our book and video packages for anatomy and biochemistry. You can also follow us on Instagram for weekly posts and video. And then lastly, if you have any questions about the content of this video or about DaVinci Academy, put them in the comments and our team will be sure to answer them. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.